So just so you are aware, I'm well aware of the time. Um, so I will do my best. I was heading into this thinking that I'm going to have to break records for the shortest sermon I've ever preached in a Sunday morning context. But today we look at the purpose of prayer, continuing on in our series. Am I loud enough for you guys? Okay. First of all, I want to begin by looking at what we might think of as the scope of the gospel. So when we think of the gospel, the gospel, the definition that Paul gives us, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you of first importance the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel means the good news, or it's the good message. It's, it's that thing that we proclaim that is, it, is, it brings good news for us, centered in the person of Christ, and specifically what God has done through Christ to save us in his person and his death and resurrections, freeing us and rescuing us from sin and all of its consequences. That's what we mean, that's what we mean by gospel. And so the gospel is centered on Jesus and what he's done, and as it comes to apply to us, probably at the very center of that is our right relationship that is achieved between us and God, the very forgiveness of our sins. And yet the gospel is also very broad in its reverberations and in its scope and in the implications that it has. So just one example, if you were to just pick the book of 1 Peter, let me illustrate this to you. 1 Peter, you have, we can see both an inward implication of the gospel, an outward implication of the gospel, and an upward implication or dimension of the gospel's effect. The inward effect is obviously, as I just said, that we're proper, properly reoriented, God, and we are raised of your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, as we just sang. And so we're reconciled to God, and we are rescued, we are redeemed out of the slavery of our former sinful lifestyle. That's the inward effect that the gospel has. The outward effect, first of all, in terms of our fellow believers— that we're saved not only as isolated, or not as isolated individuals, but into a fellowship with other believers. Chapter 2, verse 5 says that you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, into the temple. We're one stone among many other stones to create a temple organism. Chapter 1, verse 22, having purified our souls by obeying the truth of the gospel, that is believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another. In other words, what Peter is arguing there is that by believing the gospel, one of the things that happens is that our souls are purified in order to love other people. That's an effect of the gospel, is the horizontal or the outward dimension. Further outward dimensions are how then we relate to society and non-believers that were separated from the unbelieving world as, dis, as a distinct people, and nonetheless we are sent to the unbelieving world as missionaries. And so we are distinct from society. Chapter 2, 11 through 12, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, keeping our conduct among the Gentiles, that is the outsiders in that sense, honorable. So our new identity in Christ is that we're exiles in this world. We don't belong in a sense and yet also we're sent into the world for the sake of evangelism and mission. Chapter 2, verse 9. You, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, like Israel was intended to be, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the gospel has inward implications, it has outward implications, and it has upward implications. 
Our salvation results in the glorification of God. That is the ultimate goal of our salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was according to God's great mercy that he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, In your salvation we rejoice, because our faith is going to be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of God at the revelation of Christ when he comes again. And so our salvation has inward, it has outward, and it has upward implications. The gospel is very specifically centered in the death and resurrection of Christ, but as the, the great hymn says, it, it goes as far as the curse is found. It is going to undo all that is wrong and evil. And now, we're in a series on prayer. We've looked at the necessity of prayer, why it's needed, and you might say it's because of the gospel-displayed dependency we have on God. We see a gospel-displayed dependency on God that we need to pray. We've looked at the basis of prayer, where we might say that was the grounds of our being able to pray is a gospel-bought access to God. Now we are going to look at the purpose of prayer, the reason why we pray. And oof, that is... Trying to wrap my head around that, like that is a huge topic. Why do we pray? Oh, do, you have a, do you have a couple hours? You don't, right? We're, we're trying to be quick this morning. So how do we boil it down? What I would argue is the reason I, looked at the, I wanted us to look at the gospel to start in the scope of the gospel is because I think the scope of the gospel maps on to the reason and the purpose why we pray. We have a gospel-shaped prayer with inward, outward, and upward aims in what we pray for. Where am I getting this? I think we can get this from Matthew 6. Danica just read the famous line in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come. Your gospel-bought kingdom, God, may it come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in other words. May your rule be reestablished as it ought to be. May we do your will. May we be citizens of your kingdom and feel its effects. And this kingdom, of course, has inward, outward, and upward dimensions. And so my thesis, what I would like to argue from that logic that I just spelled out, is this. We pray, why? What's the purpose of prayer? We pray because of the gospel one restoration of God's kingdom. Now let me unpack that. We pray because both in the sense of on the basis of this reality, but also looking forward to this reality, praying for these things, we pray for God to bring about the gospel one restoration of his kingdom. In other words, it's already won. Christ has already achieved the full kingdom in his death and resurrection. We're simply waiting to see all of its effects take place, right? And when he comes again, it will be here in full. But right now, we're in that already not yet stage of God's program where we're seeing more and more of its effects. And so we're praying for what Christ has already achieved in the gospel, what already exists in him. We're, we're praying to see more and more of that come to bear in our lives, inward, the lives of others, outward, for the glory of God, upward. And that's what we mean by the restoration of God's kingdom, the reestablishment of God's rule as it is always intended to be over his creation. God's people in God's place, experiencing his presence and his blessing. 
And so the structure for this very short rest of the sermon is I want to look at those three things. I want us to look at those three dimensions of our prayer, a praying life that is to the tune of a gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. It's inward dimensions, it's outward dimensions, and it's upward dimensions so that our prayer life can be further shaped by the gospel and the kingdom that Jesus teaches us to pray for. So the inward dimension, this is ourselves. Okay, and when I think of prime examples of this in scripture, of the inward prayer life, I think of the Psalms. Not that all the Psalms are this way, but many of the Psalms, they, they, we see confession of personal sins. We see thanksgiving to God for things that he's done in our lives. We even see lament when we're going through something personally difficult that we lament to God as an expression of our trust. There's Psalms of trust to God. It's deeply personal. And all of these prayers, I would say, are part of that kingdom paradigm because they assume and they are in many ways enacting a rightly oriented relationship with God. That part of of the kingdom is that we've actually been made citizens of the kingdom, right? That we've actually been saved and reconciled to God and its ruler. The ruler of this kingdom is no longer a judge to us, but he is a father to us. And so the first element of our prayers is that inward dimension of praying out that right relationship with God, that restored relationship with God, where we can go to God with our anxieties, casting all of our cares upon him because he cares for us, as Peter says. Psalm 73 demonstrates this really well. In Psalm 73, it begins by saying, in verse 1 through 3, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But then the psalmist says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Like I almost fell off the bandwagon here. I almost fell off. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at what what was going on in the wicked. Things seemed to be going well for them. It almost made me lose my faith. I almost fell off. But then you go down to the middle of the psalm, and at at the very center of the psalm, we see that the psalmist says this. But when I thought how to understand this, well, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You see, for the psalmist, the, the, the situation was bleak. Whatever and whatever, map it onto your own experience, some difficulty you're going through. The situation seems bleak when you look at the situation on its own terms. But the psalmist says, when I went to the sanctuary of God, when I actually brought these things in light of who God is, and I encountered God, I encountered his goodness, I encountered his power and his sovereignty, it reshaped my perspective on the entire situation. He goes on to then talk about these wicked people as if they're like like a dream that passes. Like he talks about waking up from a dream. Have you ever had that experience where maybe you uh, you had a nightmare or you're in this middle of this really crazy dream, and it's so like it's capturing your mind. You wake up from the dream, and it takes you a minute, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, that was just a dream, right? Like you're kind of like, you, you, you're lost in the dream so much that when you first wake up, you're kind of like thinking it's still real, and eventually you wake up and you realize, well, thank goodness that was all, that was all a dream, right? The psalmist is saying that that's sort of like what it's, what it's like inwardly in our inward prayer life before God. That all the, all the distressing things around us They could feel overwhelming. We can feel taken in by them. But when we bring those things to God, we reorient ourselves to who God is. It's like waking from a dream and seeing things properly on account of who God is over those things. 
And I think about even the news we just heard and what it looks like for us to bring those things properly under the attributes and care of our good God, to have a right perspective as we head forward. And so that's the inward dimension. What about the outward dimension? The outward dimension. Well, one aspect of this, of our, pray, of our praying life, as we seek to see God's kingdom come, is we seek to see God's kingdom come more and more in the lives of our fellow believers, right? So I think of Colossians. I'll use two examples from Colossians. So Paul, talking to the, the church in Colossae, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, this is an example of how Paul prayed for other believers. Listen to how Paul gives us a model for praying for our fellow believers. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We pray prayers like this because as we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as in heaven, we want to see more of the fruit of that gospel one kingdom take root in each other's lives, do we not? We want to see the effect of the kingdom take more and more root in our own church. Not just ourselves, the inward dimension, but each other, the outward dimension, as we've covenanted together to, 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 to see each other grow as maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. And what if we prayed prayers like this for each other? What if we prayed prayers like this for each other? Certainly, there's nothing wrong with praying for each other's upcoming surgery or maybe that upcoming certification test for their work or their school homework or whatever the case may be. There's nothing wrong with that. As, as God or Jesus leads us to pray in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Like God cares about daily bread. He cares about the mundane, right? But one of the example, some of the examples we get in Scripture is that as we encounter those mundane things, what does it look like to pray, God, would you use that medical um, issue that that person's going through? Like, God, if it be your will, heal that person. Give the doctors wisdom. But God, use that situation for even greater ends. Use it for their maturation as a follower of Christ. Use that maybe stressful condition at work. Not only, God, would you, if it be your will, to relieve that stressful condition, but God, use that as a catalyst for their growth. That we pray, as Paul says, that, that each other would live lives that are worthy, that are fitting of the very gospel and the calling to which God has called us. That, God, would you, would you pray that Brandon would be filled with the knowledge of Christ? Would you pray that, 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 that Peter would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might? God, we thank you that you have, that you have made Abby Park qualified to share in the inheritance among the saints in light. I mean, those are, those are wonderful prayers. And so one of the challenges I would give us is, is you try to do this practically, try to improve in your outward prayers, as I put it, is pray through the directory. That's one example. Print off the directory. It's on our membership page. And, and maybe take five people every day, or maybe take one person every day. Pray through that person. Maybe write them a note. Maybe text them, I was praying for you. Let them know. Be an encouragement to them. Ask how you can pray. Maybe take notes about how you can pray for each person. 
or on a broader scale, rather than merely kind of praying through the individuals in the directory, you might print off the church's church covenant, which is also going to be found on our website, and you might pray through the bullet points of our church covenant, the things that we've agreed, uh, we've committed to each other, to say, God, make us a praying people. God, make us a people who bears one another's burdens and bears one another's hurts. God, make us a people who, who longs to see the mission go forth. The other dimension is not only in our, in our outward dimension is it fellow believers, but it's also non-believers. It's the world around us. And so we pray as well for them. Colossians 4, later in the book, Colossians 4, 2 through 4 says this. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us. Paul's saying, pray for me, that God may open to us a door for the word, for the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so not only do we want to see the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom spread within our own community, we want to see that gospel spread outside of our community, across Milwaukee and across the globe. And so we ought to practically be praying for evangelistic opportunities. And maybe one way you can do this is keeping a list of of folks that you know, maybe family members, maybe coworkers, maybe neighbors, that um, you're unsure of or you know that they're not yet a believer in Christ, to be praying for them regularly. I think one of the benefits of praying for non-believers specifically is that it opens your eyes up to opportunities. Um, sometimes there are opportunities for evangelism that we just miss because we're not actually thinking about it enough. And praying, making that a regular discipline, tunes our heart to want to see the gospel go forward. It tunes our heart to God's heart for the lost. Another thing you might do practically is rotate praying for our missionaries. So I'll just tell you one thing that we do. If you've been over to our house for dinner, we have our three missionaries. We have their little cards. You can get the cards out on the resource table for each of our missionaries. We have them pinned on a cork board in our dining room. And every day we rotate which missionary we're going to pray for. So before, so we're not forgetting them. It's, it's kind of bundled up with our routine of dinner time or lunch times if, if we're all together. And we pray for our different missionaries. And that might be something you don't have to do it exactly that way, but a way to pray for our missionaries, to keep missions on our hearts. And again, relevant today, that we would pray that God might even raise up more and more missionaries from within our church. That even when that's a hard thing to send somebody out, that we would pray that God would be doing more in that, raising up more leaders within our church, raising up more people that we might send out for the sake of the gospel. And then lastly, so we've had the inward dimension of prayer, we have had the outward dimension of prayer, the last dimension is then the upward dimension of prayer. And so we pray for the praise of our great God. Really, everything we've said up until this point is really the penultimate reason we pray. You want to talk about the real purpose for prayer. The real purpose for prayer ultimately is the glory of God, right? Everything we've said up until this point is really the means of seeing God glorified. And so we pray with the end that our prayers would praise God, that they would be prayers that ascribe the glory due to God and for his gospel one kingdom. That as that gospel one kingdom is enacted and it's spread and we see more and more of its fruit, that it would result in the praise of the God who brings about that kingdom and gives us that kingdom. We are the mere recipients of it. And so right before in Matthew 6, right before Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, he says this, our Father in heaven, may your name be held high and holy. May it be hallowed. May it be revered. May it be held up. 
Or in Psalm 79, verse 9, the psalmist says, Help us, O God of our salvation. God, salvation belongs to you, as Jonah says. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone us from our atone, sorry, and atone for our sins for your name's sake. That the ultimate reason why God performs salvation is for his own glory, for his own namesake, to display his amazing mercy, justice, and grace. Or as Ephesians 1 shows us over and over and over, this great passage about how God has predestined and elected his own, and then Christ has purchased his own, and then the Holy Spirit applies his own. Over and over across those first 14 verses in Ephesians, we get this refrain, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of salvation from first to last, salvation planned, salvation accomplished, and then salvation applied by the Spirit is to the praise of God's glory. And so how do our prayers, our inward prayers, our outward prayers, how do they end up shaping and leading to upward prayers that result in the glory of God? We can ask ourselves then as a a barometer, is are our prayers man-centered or are they God-centered? Is our prayer life man-centered or is it God-centered? Again, Jesus shows us there's nothing wrong with praying for mundane things, our daily bread. But ultimately, this, this could challenge how we think of prayer. How do you think of prayer? Do you think of it in these, these purposes as Scripture presents to us with the ultimate aim, for example, being not for our own satisfaction, not as some you know, way to kind of get all your desires, like a, like a kid in a Christmas list, you know, going through a catalog, trying to list off all the things they want. But ultimately, we say, Lord, your will be done. As Jesus prayed in the garden, not, not what I will, God, but what you will, to your glory. Do what glorifies you. You are good. You not only deserve the glory, but your glorification is good for us as well. And so one practical thing you might do with that is as a way of orienting your prayers to the God to whom we pray and having them maintain that upward direction is as you go through this, you could go through the Psalms and as you go through the Psalms, you could keep a biography of God. Um, What I mean by that is as you go through every psalm in in a journal, in a notebook, every time you see one of God's attributes displayed, you write down what that attribute is and you learn, you make your prayers. As you pray those psalms, psalms are prayers, right? As you pray those psalms, you focus on how they highlight the very goodness, uh, the very character of God. And so in short, in summary, putting a bow around it all, we pray because of the gospel one restoration of God's kingdom. Contrary to how we might otherwise think of prayer, we want our prayers to be oriented in that direction, that we pray because of the gospel one restoration of God's kingdom. We pray, in other words, to the tune of the gospel, that as the gospel has inward ramifications and outward and upward ramifications, we pray to see more and more of that take effect. And so one of the things I want to do practically for us, or suggest practically, again, this is, this is not an imposition you don't have to do this, but just a suggestion, is this Wednesday, I would like to suggest, and I, this is in the, at least the online bulletin announcements, I can't remember if it's in the printed one, but it would be for all of us to engage in a fast, um, if you're willing and able, on when, this Wednesday, November 10th. Um, you can tip, Typically, fasts are fasting from food, um, but it could also be something else. Maybe you fast from your phone that day or from social media or something else like that. 
And the idea, in part, is to convey that as we ache for food, as we get hungry, is that, that it conveys our ache for God, our dependency on God, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And so with that as well, that you may, oftentimes you may substitute whatever time you would have spent eating, you spent time in prayer. And I think it's a particularly good season for us to do that, obviously, with the announcement this morning, thinking about how do we pray for that outward spread of the gospel? How do we submit ourselves rightly to a, to a Godward direction in our prayers, not our will, but your will be done? And can we commit ourselves, again, if you're willing and able, this Wednesday to be uh, dedicating ourselves to those sort of questions, um, submitting ourselves to God this Wednesday in a church-wide fast, uh, committing ourselves to pray those things. So at this point, as we head into the Lord's Supper, every week we get to celebrate the gospel. That's what Christ has given us in the Lord's Supper, is a celebration of the gospel. And as we think about Christ's gospel one kingdom the lord's supper is a reminder of that every single week that this kingdom that we are talking about praying for that we long to see come is not a kingdom that we can produce on our own the kingdom is not something that men do that that humans achieve by our own muster it is something that we receive it is something that was purchased by christ on the cross reflected in the bread and the wine the very body and blood of Christ given for us on the tree. And it is a kingdom that we receive. It is not a kingdom we earn. We are not brought into this kingdom. We are not made citizens of this kingdom by anything that we can do. As Jesus says, you will not see the kingdom unless you are born again, he says to Nicodemus in John 3. If you flip back two chapters earlier to John 1, he says that we're not born of our flesh or of, a, of human exertion or human will, but we're born by the Spirit. That all of what we've been talking about this morning is because we, we celebrate this because it's what God has done and not something that we have achieved. And that is what the Lord's Supper communicates to us every single week. It's a reminder that the things we pray for are not things that we can produce on our own. Remember, prayer speaks to our dependency on God. It's a gospel dependency. And so we are thankful that God has made us we ourselves citizens of that kingdom by Christ's death. And we thank God that in his grace he even chooses to give his creation a restored kingdom when we did not deserve it. And so uh, at Crossway we, do, uh, we, would, we would practice that. Um, if you are a believer in Christ who is walking in accord to the gospel in repentant faith, not about... Um, you know, having absolute perfection. Obviously, the, God, or the Lord's Supper assumes that we're not perfect. That's what the whole thing is about, right? But a proper sort of direction of, of repentant faith in the gospel, we would invite you to partake with us this morning. If you're here today and you are not a believer, yet a believer in Christ, we would just ask that you would refrain, um, as we do believe that it's a specific ordinance for believers. And so at this time, we'll have everyone come forward. We'll sing our closing song. When you get back to your seats, uh, you can be seated. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup.